This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. This is The Conspiracy Show, but uh, it's not Richard Serrett this evening. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in the big chair. While Richard is silent, actually not really, he's uh, he's in Seattle. And uh, as they say in the biz, he's on assignment, filming the weird and wonderful things that he always does best. That is unveil the hidden truth in this most strange place that we call reality. He does such a great job at it, too. So he's left me in the big chair, and uh, here I sit with any kind of luck. We will do some justice to the big chair tonight, and hopefully you will enjoy that. Um, In this hour, uh, coming up, we're going to have a a bit of a strange conversation, and I hope that uh, you'll bear with us because it will stretch your imagination beyond belief. And it's about the merging of souls. Uh, This young lady, her name is Jeannie Klein, has had it happen to her. Somehow she has managed to merge with another soul, a deceased soul. If that's not strange enough, the soul she has merged with, hold on to your hats, is Superman. Well, actually, not really. She's merged with the deceased actor, George Reeves, with his soul, believe it or not. Somehow, inexplicably, these two share a soul. I'm not sure how it works, but we're going to be speaking with Jeannie and her good friend and therapist, Gary Duncan, later on in a few minutes. But before that, I just want to run a few things by you. As you probably know, I have a deep interest in the phenomenon of UFOs. More so the, I guess, the political aspects of the whole crazy phenomenon we all know as UFOs. And more so the political aspects of the disclosure movement around trying to get the government to come forward about what they know about this whole thing. And when I say government, I'm talking about the world governments who definitely have some idea what's going on, but they're just not telling us. But there's been a really significant development over the past, I'd say, three or four months, and it's got a bit of a twist to it. 
And uh, I'd like to try to just run that by you to sort of update you on what's really going on, because this reaches right into the White House, deep into the White House. And it's all about a man named John Podesta. Now, John Podesta was, during the administration of uh, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, he was the chief of staff, a pretty high-profile position within the, uh, probably one of the most high-profile besides the, uh, the vice president, uh, chief of staff within the White House. And he did that up to the year 2000. And following that, he got hooked up with two people. Actually, what I should do is tell you that while he was in the White House, it was no uh, strange matter to know that John Podesta was interested in the phenomenon of UFOs. Um, he, his, his nickname was Skippy. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe like pe- peanut butter. I'm not quite sure. But uh, he made it known to many people within the White House that he was interested in this whole phenomenon called UFOs. So along comes the year 2000, and he finishes up uh, with Mr. Clinton in the White House, and he hooks up with uh, a young lady named Leslie Kane and another young fellow named James Fox. Now, Leslie Kane was a Boston Globe journalist at the time, and she wrote the book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on Record. And that particular book went to number 29 on the New York Times bestseller list. That's quite an accomplishment. And also, he hooked up with James Fox, a film producer who um, many of you might know uh, produced the, uh, the film Out of the Blue. So anyways, these three people uh, went forward and they had a press conference. And he went public. John Podesta went public at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., asking the government, no, pardon me, demanding that the government come clean about UFOs. Now, this was done at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And as you are probably aware, that location, I've been there a couple of times, I've spoke there actually uh, twice, is the place where John F. Kennedy spoke. Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, just about every president that you can imagine has said something significant, significant about where they stand on issues from the National Press Club. And John Podesta said this at the National Press Club. I think it's time to open the books uh, on, on uh, questions that have remained in the dark, on the, on the question of, of government investigations of, of UFOs. It's time to find out what, what the truth really is that's out there. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Now, can you imagine that? A former White House chief of staff ending his tenure in the White House and then hooking up with two UFO advocates in the, by the names of Leslie Kane and James Fox and coming forward in such a public manner to demand that a government that he worked for come forward about the UFO issue. Now, that's not really the strange part. What comes next is this recent development. Within the Barack Obama government right now, as you are probably aware, uh, his administration is flagging. He's uh, virtually almost a lame duck president. Many people have characterized it that way. At least I do. And Barack Obama saw fit way back when to have John Podesta at the beginning of Barack Obama's tenure as president He assigned him as the co-chair of the transition team into the White House. Every president has a transition team that they 
smooth out all of the ripples and the bumps as the new president moves into his um, into the White House. And that position lasted a couple of months, and it ended. And John went on. John Podesta went on to do other things at the time. But about three months ago, Barack Obama names this fellow, John Podesta, as a special counsel to the White House to reboot the flagging Barack Obama administration. Now, my question is, why would Barack Obama, for whatever reason, assign John Podesta, a known UFO advocate, who's come forward to the National Press Club, as special counsel for his administration. I find this absolutely bizarre and almost to the point of unbelievable. Now, you can call it speculation if you wish. You know, it's just coincident. But what else can you call it? I say it's a movement towards some kind of disclosure. It's a sign that somebody on the inside is going to make some sort of move towards disclosure. I could be wrong. A lot of times we are when we start speculating that way. In any case, I just thought I'd share that with you because I think it is uh, very, very important that we pay attention to these signs. If you want to know more about it, you can go to my website, Zeland Communications. Just Google Zeland Communications and you can have a look at uh, not only what you heard this evening with John Podesta, but all the documents that have emanated from the White House in the Clinton administration about demands that the administration of Bill Clinton come forward to end the secrecy surrounding the UFO issue. You can also go to uh, Stephen G. Bassett's website, Paradigm Research Group. And uh, at that site, you can see all the letters and you can see all of the information about John Podesta. And uh, I think we'll be looking for some real action that might come forward as a result of this development. Um, I think we can move forward now. And with our evening with Jeannie Klein and Gary Duncan. Um, It is a very, very strange story. A story that if you're sitting down, uh, you'll be okay. If you're standing up, you just might fall over when you start hearing the kinds of things that will stretch your imagination beyond control. So I'd like to welcome Jeannie at this time, Jeannie Klein and Gary Duncan. Not too bad. How are uh, how are things there now? Uh, pretty good. This is in uh, uh, Durham, North Carolina, and uh, uh, our, our weather is a little bit different than yours up there. I'm hoping that it is because up here we've got <laughs> I can't tell you how much snow. It's just been an amazing uh, well, gosh, two or three weeks. We've had absolute blistering cold, absolute snow beyond belief. And uh, I guess just things falling from the sky that, uh, and apparently we're supposed to be getting some more too, and it's been one heck of a winter. So um, welcome to the show, Gary, and also, um, Jeannie, are you there? Yes, good evening. Good evening. And where are you located this evening? Uh, Texas. In Texas, I hope. In the, uh, the Metroplex. I see. Metroplex. Okay. I see. The big storm that we got, yeah, the big storm we got over the past couple of days came from uh, the the northern part of Texas, as I understand it. Yeah, we yeah. we passed all along to you all. 
Well, thank thank you very much. It was a, a real a really nice gesture. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I want more tomorrow, so expect more next week. <laughs> terrific, terrific, terrific. Um, I, I want to kind of get an, an indication from you both, um, Jeannie, just as, as an idea. Uh, you were 13 years old uh, when the spirit of George Reeves uh, uh, came to you. And apparently um, it happened on the day that he, uh, of his demise. I believe it was uh, June 16th, 1969. And it, 59. Yeah. And, um, pardon me, yeah, 59. And it happened all at once. I know we're going to get into this more deeply, but I, I really have um, a great interest in finding out, did this thing hit you all of a sudden? Was it a gradual thing? Did you recognize what was going on? Uh, how did that happen? Well, I think we were on vacation, and I just knew, you know, he came to me and said, I'm gone now, but I'll never leave you. And it was one of those things that, you know, when you're, you know, essentially a kid, you 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 think, you know, what's going on here? And then you go on, and we were on vacation at the time in Colorado, so there were a lot of other things going on. But as, you know, the years progressed, you know, things started to happen, and I knew things, and, um, you know, it just became more part of my life that, you know, I, you know, found that our lives, a lot of things paralleled, and, you know, he was always there. Did you recognize him as as George Reeves? Oh yes, you did. Okay, okay. Well, um, as you can hear in the background, we have a musical bed there. That indicates that we have to take a bit of a break. Um, just stay with us. We'll uh, we'll keep on going it's on the other side of the break. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to the Conspiracy Show. Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. I played that clip for a very specific reason. Um, and it's almost a, a strange synchronicity, uh, both you and uh, uh, Jeannie and Gary. As a young boy, I grew up with George Reeves, every single episode of Superman. I had the red cape. I jumped off the, the side of my couch, pretended that I could fly. Up at the cottage, I would leap off the swing that uh, my granddad had built in the back of the cottage on the two big pine trees, and I'd fly through the air, um, pumping hard so that I could get uh, as much velocity going as I could. Uh, on an occasion, I would hit the side of the cottage, and, and it would be very, very painful. So I realized then I really wasn't made of steel. But the, the whole synchronicity of, of how this is happening this evening with someone like myself who's, uh, who literally grew up with this, with this fellow, both Superman and George, uh, I find it a very um, interesting uh, coincidence, if nothing else. Uh, Gary, you've, you've had a career um, in, in, in research. Um, you spent near 
21 years in the private practice as a psychotherapist and a sex educator, as a licensed professional. Right. Um, you've had a, quite a background, and even as a, a Gnostic Catholic priest. So you, you have uh, pretty well covered the, the whole gamut of the, the psychological aspects of this, as well as the spiritual aspects of this. Right. Um, at the beginning of this whole thing, how, how, did, you, how did you first meet Jeannie? Uh, I was teaching some courses at the University of Cincinnati, and Jean came into my uh, <clears throat> my autumn course, and I was teaching a, a course on dreams in the winter, and she was in that course. And then I was teaching a course in the spring on um, Western inner traditions, and she came in that course. And all through those uh, the first meeting, she um, asked for my card, my business card, and eventually in the third quarter, she set up an appointment. The odd thing was, on the day that she set up the appointment, I picked up the phone to make an outgoing call, and she was on the line already, and I, that just sort of blew me away. She uh, set up an appointment, and when she came in, uh, she... Uh, told me the story uh, uh, that there was a spirit with her uh, by the name of George Reeves. You know, as a psychotherapist, the first thing that popped in my mind was, I'm, was I, that I'm dealing with a psychotic here. And she presented a picture of him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a George Reeves fan or a Superman fan. Um, but the second interview I had with her, uh, this spirit began to talk to me. And uh, immediately I thought, well, I may be dealing with a mobile personality here. Uh, but as time went on, uh, I became um, eventually convinced that Jean was having some kind of a uh, delusional experience. And I set out to uh, crack some holes in it. But as time went on, uh, it flipped back on me. And uh, as a matter of fact, we ended up at the Super Museum in Metropolis, uh, Illinois. And through Jean, George names costumes he wore, ones he didn't wear, uh, a certificate from Pope Pius, all confirmed uh, by the curator. And I was totally blown away. And uh, so all of my little psychological theories began to crumble. And eventually, um, because of that experience with uh, Gene and George, and some other experiences. Uh, I was working with people that were uh, that were dying of AIDS, and I was having some profound spiritual experiences there as well. Those combined, I eventually uh, uh, left being a psychotherapist and became a, a Gnostic Catholic priest. Um, so I, I I view this whole. Um, um, experience as a continuum from the psychological to the spiritual. Now, could you just very um, quickly, if you could, uh, kind of encapsulate the, the clinical description of, of this, this merging of the souls? We're not talking about you know, two separate entities here or soulmates. You're talking about some sort of merging. What's the clinical description of this, well, if there is one? we have none. Uh, the closest we can come to, or closest I can come to, uh, is like a um, a unitive experience in which, like the mother and the child, or the or the baby that is in her, when she gives birth, she's still psychologically and spiritually connected with that child. Mm-hmm. Jean 
and George are similar. Now, in their particular case, um, they say that their souls split apart as male and female and has gone through lifetimes after lifetimes uh, experiencing different variations of love. This whole concept can be traced back to Plato. And um, also the, uh, uh, the Persians talked about it, this concept of uh, twin souls. And when the merger takes place is when the souls have uh, gone through um, um, various incarnations and they're ready to finish a, a specific lifetime. And then they merge to go on and experience other lifetimes. So my hunch is that this lifetime, uh, see, George is waiting for Jean to die so they can be together and go into the light together. George hasn't gone into the light. So my hunch is that this is the last lifetime that Gene and George are going to have in our physical reality, and they're going to move on. But it is a unitive experience. It's almost like a... Uh, so to classify it in a psychological or psychiatric way is very difficult. Um, the only... The only... Um, uh, real way of looking at it is through a spiritual context, and that's why I call it a unitive experience. Mm -hmm. Those experiences are in the mystical, uh, and Gene and George are having that type of experience. Mm -hmm. Jeannie, what does it feel like? Can you give give us a sense of what it actually physically feels like to experience this? In, in what respect? Um, well, I'm I'm sitting here trying to imagine. For me, or or um, it, it's kind of evolved, like you said. Things as we have gone along have kind of changed, and I guess as I'm getting older and getting closer to, you know, the end days, it's going to change even more. Mm. That he's more part of me. Um, and, you know, for Gary, we would split off sometimes. I mean, he did all kinds of experiments to see, you know, what was going on when we were we were getting together. And um, now it's hard to tell the difference. I live my life now, and this is what George wants, that I get the experiences here. But, you know, he's still here. He's still part of me. And, you know, I, I can tell sometimes the difference in, in thought processes, as mm-hmm. it were, things he wants me to experience uh, as he did, in a way. So, so I guess w- what I'm asking you, too, is uh, w- when you find out information like uh, Gary just, uh, such as Gary just told us about the costumes, the ones he did wear and the ones he didn't wear during the during the uh, the TV program, how would he have related that to you? Would it be a verbal communication? Would it be some sort of sensual experience? Would it be a telepathic experience? Just how would that information have been transmitted to you? It's just like talking to you. Um, he was talking. It's act like he was using his experience and talking through me, as it were, that I was, uh, you know, I guess the popular word is medium, but that wasn't exactly it. Right. You know, it was him saying, you know, this I didn't use that. You know, this was some other time, and, you know, this obviously was put together. And 
I would just know things. All right. Would this experience be like, um, like almost predestined? It was it was supposed to happen at, at some point in, in, in your life? I mean, it, what kind of bond is it, and how intimate is it, and how drawn was he to you or you to him? Oh, yeah, it was meant to be, you know, and we found that out later on as, you know, we went through things that, um, and I guess that's why, you know, as you were as a child, I was drawn to him. Mm-hmm. And after I grew, I didn't know why after a while that, uh, and it wasn't just a Superman show. I'd know other things that he was doing, other other films, other uh, parts of his life. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was, you know, I'm, I'm showing you how it was with me, and this is how it's going to be with you. I see. Gary, I, I want to throw something at you. Um, do you get a sense that uh, George Reeves, as you have come to know him through uh, through Jeannie, do you think that he was, at some point in his life, or all of his life, was he predisposed to this kind of psychological, um, whatever you might want to call it? Was it something that he um, knew about, or that it was eventually going to happen, or did it just happen, or was he predisposed to it all of his life? I... Uh, uh... <laughs> Let me give you a a, a, a a term. There's a term in psychiatry called a dual unity, mm-hmm. and that is very similar to what is going on with, with uh, Gene and George. Now, to address the, this particular question that you just asked, mm-hmm. uh, George didn't realize until he died uh, what his destiny was with Gene. He had his, um, he, he told me his spirit guide, uh, he uh, and I forget the name of the spirit guide, uh, but he told this uh, spirit guide to find Jean, and he and he found Jean, and then George went to her, and went into her dreams, and that's when he told her that he would be with her. Now, uh, now since you're talking with Jean, George is there as well, so you may want to ask George a question, mm-hmm. because it, uh, because when I used to work with them. I would talk with uh, Gene a while, and then I would talk with uh, George. Unlike a mobile personality, to where there's sort of an eye click, there's a uh, there's an odd stare or some kind of a shift. It's like I was accessing both people, both identities at the same time. And I even had an outside psychologist give them both uh, a um, um, a high powered psychological. Uh, a test uh, called the MMPI, and there were two distinct identities. Uh, Gene took it once, and and uh, and a few hours later, through Gene, George took it, and there were two totally different profiles um, that emerged. So there's 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 two distinct personalities there. Now, I I did an experiment once with uh, with George. I was I was trying to see if George could pull away from Gene. And I had a court appearance around uh, an estate. Uh, one of my clients died. And George came to that court appearance, and he described it perfectly. Uh, so he was able to pull away from uh, Gene. And normally he would be able to do that when Gene was asleep. But if you have a particular question that you want to address to George, you can do that, and he will answer you through Gene. Mm-hmm. So there's there's actually a conduit through which right, right. George can can express himself through Gene. Right, right, right. And since you were a fan of George Reeves, you may want to ask him something. Um, 
I, uh, <laughs> since you have, with uh, Jean, you have them both there. Well, I was just going to ask uh, the, the question of, of Jeannie, you know, is this something that you can turn on and off, or is it just like he's there all the time tapping you on the shoulder and saying, my, it's my turn? It's the latter. And okay. He doesn't always gotcha. say it's my turn. <laughs> he he sort of jumps right, or he just fly he just flies right in, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was George just. That was just there. Okay, you know what? We'll um, we'll talk to George when we get back. We'll uh, I mean, because of my background with uh, with this this man from from Krypton, I just might be able to conjure up a question um, when we get back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to the Conspiracy Show. This is my first time actually meeting Gene Klein, and psychically I can sense the presence of George Reeves. Nobody could really give me an answer why he came to me. Well, three and a half years ago, uh, I took one of Gary Duncan's courses, and I found out all the answers. His client is having a relationship with the spirit of George Reeves, who was the television Superman from the 50s and 60s. Well, it happened when I was 13 years old on the day he died. And it was George in white. And he said, I'm gone now, but I'll never leave you. I pulled the trigger, but uh, someone else put the shots, the live shots in the gut. The live shots in the gut. Now, but I'll never leave you. It failed. George. Yes. 13 years ago. <laughs> 13 years ago. <laughs> Actually... What kind of life? Uh, seven years ago. Okay. Okay. What kind of life are you living right now? Very quiet, <laughs> in comparison to the way it was. <laughs> how, how how was it before? Well, you know, I was quite a nightlifer. She's not. We're antithesis. <laughs> I see. Tell me about your love hate relationship with this role that you played? Well, it got me the uh, name recognition I wanted, but it killed my career, and that's why I feel sorry for the the guys that came behind me. You know, look what happened to uh, some of them, too. It's... Uh, uh, Wanted a leg up, not not uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a boot out the door. <laughs> I guess the other question that I have to ask you is, um, what is your assessment of um, the life that you lived? Mm, good question. Hmm. Well, we always can do better things. Um, In Hollywood, you have a skewed view of, of reality as such, and when you become, when you become a quote-unquote personality, it becomes even more so. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of good or you can do a lot of harm. And uh, a few of the things I tried to do good with, and, and like her, I, I like to work with children, um, But on the other hand, you know, the partying and uh, that got out of hand. But, again, it, it's where you are and what you're doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still that way. Uh, 
part of being a celebrity is being out, and being out is out in the uh, uh, party life. Mm-hmm. Um, are you planning another life to get it right this time? Or to try to make things right that you didn't have right to begin with? Well, existence is a learning experience, you know, you, and you find out, and that's when you, when you leave, you find out, did I learn what I was supposed to learn this time? And if you didn't, then you find another existence to try to learn that lesson, more or less. Mm-hmm. And yes, we probably will. You know, as Gary said, maybe not here, but somewhere we will find out what we need to learn and learn that. It's, you hate to say evolution, because that becomes a bad word in this reality, but you evolve into a higher being. Mm-hmm. Do you take much time away from Jeannie? Not a lot. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no need to at this point. I see. No, but there was a time when I had to separate them. Uh, you remember that, George? Yes. <laughs> remember how peeved off you got at me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just uh, it went through my mind. <laughs> how do you feel talking to George? Did you notice the slight differences when you were talking with Gene? Okay, with that, folks, um, we're going to take a break. I just need to catch my breath after that little episode. <laughs> um, I just fell out of the chair. Let's take a break, and we'll continue this on the other side. Uh, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. Here we are back again. We are speaking with um, Gary Duncan and uh, Jeannie Klein, and we're talking about, uh, I guess, all of the aspects of, uh, of their book, Twin Souls, that is the the melding, or however you want to call it, of uh, George Reeves and Gene Klein. Um, very quickly, uh, Gary, if I could, um, the idea of uh, what Jeannie is going through right now, and I sort of picked up on it in your article, regarding, uh, first of all, regardless of what the materialists say, there is something very, very strange going on here, and there are other realities that they do exist. I think... I, I know that for sure myself. I don't know how I know it, but I do know it. But the other thing that that I want to address, it's a more more physical aspect of what's going on here, not necessarily the the more ethereal ones. And that is the the idea that Gene is somehow shape shifting, looking like the late George Reeves. Now that that is something that I find in completely uh, incomprehensible. Not that I don't believe it or, or not believe it, but I just. It's just hard to get my my mind wrapped around that that idea. Um, wh- when that first started, uh, I started taking pictures of uh, of uh, Gene, and uh, and what I discovered, and this blew me away as a therapist, that they were having a sexual relationship. Um, a spirit was uh, and Gene, uh, Gene and the physical flesh and George in the spirit and during the orgasmic phase an energy would leave George and go into Gene and as this process occurred Gene started shape-shifting 
she started looking more and more and more like George Reeves. And at that time, the first thing that crossed my mind was uh, spirit possession, uh, sort of like in, um, in, in the voodoo trance, the, uh, uh, the person in the trance, they, they, they shapeshift somewhat. Uh, and I started uh, investigating that, but it, it, it didn't pan out. But there was some sort of an energy that was passing between George during those lovemaking uh, sessions. And that's what I alluded to earlier, because uh, it got so bad for Gene that it was totally exhausting. And I had to mm-hmm. create a, a special room in Gene's inner world so that she could go into and, uh, and be a f- free from George Reeves during that period of time. But it was during that time that there was heavy lovemaking, and energy passed through him into her, and she started taking on his physical uh, characteristics. I and then, see. and that's when I started taking pictures. I see, and that seems to be evolving more and more. Right, right. Jean, uh, Jean has masculinized to the point that at times she can be in a ladies' room, and a woman will come in while Jean is in there, and she she will look and she'll see Jean and think that she's in the wrong bathroom. I see. And Jean will say, "No, you're you're in the right one." <laughs> uh, so 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 yeah, she's 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 becoming more and more physically. Uh, masculine, looking more and more like George Reeves. Now, Jean, do you actually feel this occurring, or how, how's that happening? You mean the transformation? Yeah, in a tactile sense. Um, well, it's just uh, kind of like aging. You know, you get up in the morning and, you know, the hair is gray now. <laughs> you know, then um, it, it's the way it happened then. It was kind of gradual and you know, and I'd thought in the picture in the book, if you've seen it, um, yep, I, I thought in a way I looked like him anyway. And I even wrote some letters because I thought, well, maybe there is a connection, and that's why I'm I'm looking more like him. Maybe there is a background, you know, genetically that you know mm-hmm. we have a common relative because we were from the same, you know, from Illinois, the same areas. Right. Uh, part of my mother's history, I don't know, because she was adopted, and, uh, you know, he didn't know a lot about his history either. Some of it was shielded from him. And, you know, I thought that was a possibility, mm-hmm. cause, um, but I could see it more, and, you know, as Gary said, I, I became more masculine-looking, and, um, you know, it, it, I I don't know if it's good. Yeah, I look like a little old man now. <laughs> <laughs> now, is, is this is this something that is is an evolution both physically uh, and you're you're becoming the, the Jackie on this male persona or whatever you w- would want to call it? Is there a similar spiritual evolution going on in, in you? Between that, you know, that's right. The two of us are together. Yes. Um. And uh, you said, you know, Gary said, well, I'm not moving around much anymore, asking him if I'm going out anymore. And, and, you know, we're just together. And, you know, we're just living this life now together. Well, that, that brings me to the point of, of asking this question of um, the, the personification of this individual, Mr. Reeves, and, and Gene's psychological, I guess, involvement in all of that. It, it, it seems to be, at least to me anyways, there is a soul um, awaiting some sort of completion here, either uh, the transition into one soul 
or reuse real identity or whatever it happens to be. There seems to be a movement towards some sort of completion. And, and what, what kind of sense do you feel that it will be complete? And do you have any sense of where it's going, I guess, is, is what I'm asking you. Oh, yeah, I think, well, and that's what it seemed, you know, like, what, what's the purpose of this? And this is what we mm-hmm. asked all along when the, when the uh, experience started, you know, why? You know, why is he here with me? Why me? And I think that's the conclusion, too, that once the physical body dies, then we will, you know, be together and go on, evaluate and see, you know, what the next step in our... Um, evolution happens. Mm-hmm. Now, Gary, as, a, as an observer of all of this, um, I, I guess I could ask you the same kind of question. Is Where do you see this going? And, and is there anything that you do as a facilitator to move it along? Do you monitor it? Do you guide, support? What, what, what is your role in this, in this movement towards completion? Well, what I have been looking at, and, and, and I've been dealing with a lot of other cases uh, of, of twin souls, or what's called twin souls. Nothing approaches this this Gene and George phenomenon. But it, it from a spiritual perspective, what I see this is about is it's about that that we're all interconnected in some way. Mm-hmm. Gene and George, they 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 came here in this lifetime. He spirit, her her physical. Uh, to show that they are connected from this world into this next world, and uh, and I think that there's a larger a larger picture here, and uh, um, it's like why do souls split apart? I mean, I, I don't know that answer, but I do feel that Gene and George, their their soul is in other lifetimes as well. This is only one lifetime, and they're they're coming together in this lifetime to move on. But I believe that that, that their soul is in other lifetimes at the same time that we're in this lifetime in a in parallel realities. So as I monitor them, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at all the other cases I've been working with, and I compare those cases to the Gene and George case. This is a totally different. Uh, situation. It's very different from any of the other cases I am, I am working with. I'm, I'm, I'm also uh, talking to, uh, not talking, but uh, but emailing a lady in um, uh, in Australia that's having a similar uh, experience, uh, but nothing on the um, the gravity of uh, Jean and George. So as I monitor it, I'm looking at all these other cases and comparing it and trying to figure out what what is the big picture here. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to find. Well, I think the big picture is what humanity can learn from these kinds of situations. Uh, if this kind of, of uh, uh, melding or whatever you want to call it uh, is something that's universal and, and it shows us that in some way we are in always uh, connected with everybody right so that y- you and I have a, a certain affinity for one another and that's just that just goes for humanity period which is not something in secular society that's easily uh, either a explainable or accepted by by people and, and this kind of instance kind of stands up and, and indicates that uh, there is something going on and the first thing that comes to my mind is the acceptance of the mystery of the Trinity and how um, uh, Catholicity has brought the, this into being, uh, either through enlightenment or um, 
whatever you want to inspiration. Uh, is there is there any similarities with that in in the religious uh, context? Um, in some of the uh, the uh, Edgar Casey um, um, uh, readings. He talks about. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the uh, Trinity. He talks about something very, very, very similar. Mm-hmm. That the twin soul is a very sacred um, experience. But he but he but he doesn't talk about this this physical transformation. He he just says they they uh, split apart and they come back together at the point of completion mm-hmm. to go back into one soul. Okay, we are just about coming to uh, a bit of a closure here, and there's a, about another thousand questions that I would have for both of you, but our time is limited. Uh, uh, Jeannie, just a, a bit, uh, a word about your book, very quickly. I'm sorry? Just a, just what a would word. Would you like to know? No, just a word about your book. Where do you get it? Uh, oh, ask uh, Gary that. Okay. <laughs> well, then, Gary, I'll ask you three questions then. <laughs> yeah, On just, Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. And, and you can also go to the uh, to the publisher's website, which is www.twinsoulsmerging. dot com. I see. Okay. And I understand, Gary, you're uh, you're in the midst of writing a book, uh, Death, Transcendence, and Beyond. Right. Right. I have uh, worked with a lot of people uh, uh, that are dying, and uh, and I've developed a a method to help them go into the next journey. I see. And uh, and, and I've been exploring uh, how that journey takes form, and what they're to expect once they go into the light. And that's what that's. And I'm also writing a series of articles for New Dawn uh, Mm -hmm. about the the, uh, spiritual uh, connections to how you can talk to people that that have crossed over. um, And and this journey I I, uh, take people on, and I'm writing an article now on what the the, uh, spirit and soul are. Well, an absolutely fascinating um, 45 minutes or so that uh, I really hope that we can get you back on again and maybe uh, drill down a little deeper into into all of this because it's something that, uh, because of my affiliation with the character of uh, that George portrayed and, and also the wider um, cultural, religious, and human, uh, you know, human aspects of what's going on here, uh, it's not something you can cover in 45 minutes and say, well, it's all done. Um, well, all you have to do is send me an email. Okay. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to say, George or Jean? Well, we're all connected. And, and I think that's the big thing that we found out. You know, we went into past life experiences and things that Gary and our other partner, Daryl, have done together. And sometimes you meet people and you think, Boy, they're familiar, you know, and you have a, a good relationship with these people, and and you continue that through your life experience this time, and mm-hmm. it, it we're just all connected, and so much of the, in this reality doesn't <clears throat> acknowledge that. Well, that's part of each other. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the things that concerns me the most that the the reality that we live in just won't accept this other paradigm, um, right? And uh, it, it, it is a it is a kind of a, a bothersome thing when you when you're speaking to people and you get the literally the physical um, I guess feeling that there's no way that they will ever accept this this idea of what's going on. In any case, thank you both very very much for joining uh, joining me this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we hope that we can uh, get you back on 
uh, very, and, very soon. And I have really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Good night now. Thank you. Good, Good night. night. Good evening. This is The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. Um, Richard Serrett is, as they say in the biz, on assignment. Uh, apparently he's uh, hiding out in Seattle. And he should be back sometime in the middle of the week, and he probably will join us uh, next, next week for The Conspiracy Show. Welcome, everyone. As I said, my name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm here this evening to um, help us along and uh, try to figure out uh, what's going on on this strange planet? And uh, there are many, many strange things going on that we just cannot explain. And in th- this hour, we're going to, uh, the latter part anyways, we're going to look at um, the more physical aspects of, of, uh, of our reality. And we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. James Woodward. And he is an expert physics, physicist um, from the University of California. And he's going to talk to us about uh, exotic propulsion and how, um, his, in his book, he describes how to make uh, a Stargate and how to travel in space without using conventional propulsion. And uh, Making Starships and Stargates is the name of uh, his book. And we're going to be talking with him about all of that. It's something that fascinates me to no end. Um, I'm sure most of you know that uh, a, a passion for the UFO phenomenon, and that is something that's uh, learned over the last little while, that these craft somehow, in the way they travel, use very, very exotic propulsion systems that have nothing to do with fossil fuels or any other kind of conventional um, propulsion systems that we use here on this planet. But right now, we are going to be talking about something that's, uh, uh, I guess, a little bit more ethereal. And uh, I, I guess there's no other way of explaining it. Our, our guest this evening is uh, is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who is, uh, I guess, an expert on the. I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, is it gin or digin? Gin uh, is good. Gin, okay, like the drink, I guess, eh? Okay, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Rosemary is a leading expert on the paranormal and the supernatural. The author of more than 45 books. My goodness, I can't even believe that. That's you must write all day long, Rosemary, and she includes that nine encyclopedias and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics. She possesses an exceptional knowledge of that field. And I guess what we're going to be doing this evening um, is is uh, talking to Rosemary about the whole idea of Jin Universe, what they are, and uh, we'll have to lean on her heavily because it's not something that I know a whole lot about, and I would imagine unless we reach down into other parts of our own lives that we might be able to identify other than the ones we live on a day-to-day basis, uh, we may have experienced it and not even known it. So um, I guess the first question is, what is a jinn, Rosemary? They are a race of beings who share the planet with us, and uh, in lore they preceded us here. They were here on the earth first and lost their place to us. We find similar stories uh, concerning other kinds of beings like the fairies, mm-hmm. they have uh, quite a few supernatural abilities. And throughout um, human interactions with them, uh, we've had lots of problems with them. And some believe that uh, many of the jinn have hostile intentions toward us uh, because they uh, they lost out to us and they feel that um, the earth ought to rightfully be theirs. Uh, 
I believe that they are very active in all of our paranormal experiences from hauntings to spirit possessions to um, abduction encounters, uh, attachments, and things like that. And and uh, in our culture, we don't really know it because uh, they really haven't been on our radar. Um, I've studied them for quite a few years, and when I started um, considering that they might be very active in a lot of cases of unexplained activity, problems, and phenomena, uh, a lot of things started to make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that uh, they have a major presence in what we call the ET abduction phenomenon. Uh, I believe that um, they are participating in this, whether or not there are a variety of beings participating. It's hard to say. Uh, the jinn are shapeshifters, and uh, so they could account for quite quite a few of the entities that we put various labels on because they all look different yet they could all be the same being. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, and I I might add that I spent close to 15 years um, very, very involved in the the, uh, abduction phenomenon, uh, taking a lot of uh, my cues from uh, Dr. John Mack. I spent a lot of time with him. So I've got a a very... um, you know, specific perception of what that situation might be in terms of people experiencing uh, that kind of um, that kind of phenomenon. But before we get into that, I, I want to ask you: um, in some of the 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 writing that I, I read about this um, earlier uh, this this week, either was yours or I, I learned from someplace else. A race of a supernaturally empowered beings. Now, that word "empowered beings." implies that they've obtained their, their, their empowerment from someplace else, from any sense of like where they, they drew these, this power from or their empowerment from? The uh, accounts of the origins of the jinn uh, vary and don't go into a, a lot of detail. For example, in uh, very old stories, they were said to be formed from the wind and that they gained dominion on the planet and uh, fell into disfavor because they abused their uh, their own powers. Mm-hmm. In the Quran, the story is told about them uh, as being comprised of smokeless fire, right. and that they were angels and um, made of pure spiritual light, and there were jinn made of smokeless fire, and then humans came along, and uh, that uh, God told the angels to bow down to to humans, and the angels complied, but the jinn did not. Uh, the argument, their argument being, they considered human beings to be inferior to them, and so therefore they would not do it, and they were cast out as a result of that. Um, there are accounts of communications with jinn, and um, I've found that um, in many cases they don't communicate a lot. Their name means the hidden ones, and mm-hmm. I think that um, the ones who do have hostile intent toward us, which not all of them do, um, that they they don't want us to know exactly what they're up to, and so they don't communicate very much. But some of them have explained their abilities in terms of they've learned how to manipulate the natural laws uh, of the planet in ways that we have not. They've learned how to use uh, magnetic energy and and other kinds of forces that uh, then give them these abilities that 
uh, we call supernatural. Mm. They are, uh, in all accounts, uh, masterful shapeshifters, and they seem to delight in taking forms that disturb human beings. Uh, it depends on their motives. If they uh, have a motive to uh, be sexually close to human beings, then um, they show up as uh, beautiful, looking like beautiful men and women. If they want to scare us, they might look like uh, a lot of cryptids out there, really strange creatures that um, defy explanation, that look like combinations of animals or combinations of humans and animals, uh, monstrous forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it makes a lot of sense when you consider uh, the the core experiences that people have with uh, beings, and um, that uh, throughout the ages, human beings have had the same kinds of experiences, but we tend to put different labels on them, when in fact we might all be talking about the same thing. So you're saying it's, it's more or less culturally defined, as how we perceive them? Uh, Yes, throughout uh, uh, history, we've had uh, different explanations for uh, beings. For example, let's take the fairies, for example. Um, Fairies have practically the same um, origin stories, the same folklore, same abilities, same attitudes that the jinn do. And in fact, when I started comparing the jinn to other kinds of entities, looking for similarities and differences, I found that there are so many similarities between fairies and jinn that uh, you could say that they are one and the same. And, uh, in fact, I've had uh, corroboration from uh, especially many sources in the Middle East that uh, the jinn really are responsible for all of these different forms of entities that we put different labels on. And yet our experiences with them are very consistent. They're the same. Uh, Our ancestors were um, uh, frightened of fairies. They had problems with them. They were shape-shifting entities. They didn't like people. Um, They had uh, the same attitudes toward people and the same lore in terms of how they organized themselves. Uh, they were the hidden ones. They were here on the planet first. And uh, the stories are practically the same. And yet um, we think fairies are different from other kinds of entities, and, and they might not be. They, they might just be variations of the same thing. Yeah, I guess we're, we're pretty good here in the North American culture of um, categorizing all of these so-called entities. As to, it's either this or that. There's no, there's no gray areas at all. And and yet the whole realm of the paranormal is gray. It's very blurry, and it's constantly morphing and shape-shifting. It's, it's uh, just of its own accord. It's like quicksilver. And, uh, you know, researchers, including Valet and John Keel and uh, people who have attempted to, to look for the, you know, what I call the Oz behind the curtain, mm-hmm. have all said the same thing, that uh, just as soon as you think you've got the answer, uh, the whole thing shapeshifts and uh, takes on some other form. It's like trying to take air um, out of wallpaper as you're applying it to the heat, just move someplace <laughs> else. <laughs> um, let me ask you, you mentioned John Keel, and I've done a lot of uh, reading about him. Uh, the, the Mothman, could that have been some sort of representation of what you're talking about? 
Yes, and in fact, I've I've talked about Mothman being a very good example of uh, a jinn. And uh, Mothman was very frightening to a lot of people, but uh, really didn't act out in uh, a hostile, evil sort of way toward people. In fact, it exhibited more curiosity. It acted like um, uh, some creature who fell into our our side of the interdimensional veil and got lost for a while. Uh, but Mothman is a very good example of that. In fact, I think um, cryptids are... Um, very good cases for jinn because of of their appearances. Uh, they um, behave as though they are interdimensional in nature. Um, they disappear very quickly, um, and uh, I do believe that they they live in their own realm and uh, they fall through these doorways. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Keel talked about that a lot of course, too. Yeah. We're speaking with. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Jin, the Jin Universe. And we'll be back on the other side. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Well, as you know, um, if you've been listening to the last little while, this is not Richard Serrett. Richard is in Seattle at this point, uh, doing some filming for his uh, television show. And I'm sitting in the big chair, and I'm talking to uh, the Jin expert, author of Jin Universe, um, and her name is Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And good to have you with us, Rosemary. Um, I want to address something before we get into the objection for now. I wanted to spend uh, a bit of time on that um, towards the end. But what I want to get your, your take on is th- there's always this, this kind of gap between uh, believers and non-believers. And um, I know that gap uh, very, very well being involved in the UFO phenomenon. And it, it does upset me to a certain point. Um, how do you deal with this gulf or do you at all deal with the gulf of uh, either uncertainty or incredulity, however you want to put it, um, or, or just outright cynicism. How, how do you deal with that in, in your work? Uh, does it propel you? Do you address the issue, or you just let people believe what they want to believe and just go on with your work? Um, my feeling is that uh, you, you come around to your beliefs through your own experiences, and I've always told people that it's good to be skeptical. It's uh, good to look for natural explanations first and uh, before you leap to the paranormal. And I, believe me, I deal with a lot of people who want to just leap right to the paranormal right. when, in fact, there are natural explanations for things. But um, my work is really oriented to the how and why of people's experiences. Uh, I grew up um, believing in the paranormal. I had experiences like most people do uh, when I was young, uh, everybody has a, at least some sort of um, unexplained uh, encounter or, ph- or phenomena. And uh, so these these other dimensions, these um, other realities, uh, were very natural to me. And um, yet I've, I've always looked for um, a grounded explanation first before uh, considering the paranormal. Over the course of my career, which is uh, spanning about 30 years now, um, I have to admit that my own boggle point has gotten pushed out considerably in terms of what I uh, am able to take on board as um, what I would call a genuine experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do believe that people have been having these experiences throughout history, and we've applied the best possible explanation that we can according to our time and place and our culture and other influences uh, upon us. 
um, you're not going to convince a uh, a skeptic um, of anything on intellectual grounds only mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the paranormal. And I think it's it's really a waste of time to to spend a lot of effort doing so. Um, people who are firm disbelievers are going to be disbelievers no matter what evidence you pile up uh, until they have an experience that shakes up their worldview themselves. So uh, I'm content to let the skeptics uh, be skeptical. And just let and, the cards fall where they may. Right. And so uh, I'm really more interested in uh, finding out the how and why, looking for the patterns, the cross-cultural uh, comparisons, the similarities uh, through, throughout the ages, and then um, coming up with, with some explanations uh, and also some information that's of help to people. Many of these experiences are troubling. And especially when you get into uh, persistent, unresolved hauntings, um, serial abductions, and things like that, uh, people can have their lives torn apart by these experiences. And so they really do need some sort of solid footing to approach uh, their situations. Mm-hmm. Let's move into the area of, um, of the so-called ET um, abductions, or as John Mack puts it, um, those people called experiencers are being taken. Um, in my experience, and, and once again, um, I've been involved in this for over 35 years, and there was a point when uh, I was uh, very concerned about and involved in the abduction phenomenon, but um, because of the individuals that I dealt with and the, the amount of energy that they literally drew from me in, in their attempts to reconcile what was going on, um, I, got, I got to find out that they just want to talk about their experience. They didn't want to you know, make any money on it. They didn't want to you know, do any flag-waving. They just wanted to find out what the heck was going on. And to the best of my ability, with my counseling background, I, I provided some assistance. But I found uh, in, in assisting the people, it literally sucked me dry. And I, I couldn't, I just, I had, to, I had to put it behind me. Um, and then as a result of that, I moved into the more political aspects of this. Could you give me uh, an idea as to how you see the interrelationship of, of the kinds of things you research with the traditional notion of the extraterrestrial abduction experience? Is there a, is there a, a Venn diagram overlap or the distinct? How, how do you see that? Uh, human beings seem to have had abduction experiences throughout history at the hands of uh, differently described entities. And here again, we might... Uh, all be talking about the same the same entity uh, shape shifted into different forms, and uh, the motivations of these abductions are uh, varied, uh, and uh, I think that this is a genuine experience. I I don't think they take place necessarily in uh, a physical reality, but some sort of bridge reality. Um, you could call it the astral plane or an interdimensional area mm-hmm. uh, where um, the encounter actually takes place. And uh, what our ancestors called fairy abductions, for example, where you would be spirited away into the inner earth uh, to a place where time passed differently and um, you were in an, an, an alter, alternate reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, is very similar to uh, the ET abduction. Uh, we've, I think we've just 
put a, a space-age interpretation on a very old phenomenon, and uh, that the ships that materialize may not uh, be anything more than interdimensional projections. Uh, some of the um, Middle Eastern uh, sources that I've consulted about the jinn uh, have all told me that uh, you know the jinn just adapt themselves to what they think human beings are uh, going going to believe or participate in, and um, you know fairies carrying off to the earth doesn't play anymore, mm-hmm. but beings coming from uh, yeah. allegedly coming from outer space does. It does yeah. Well, it, my experience has been, uh, and it sort of is, is parallels what you've uh, just described. It, it, people talking to me about uh, being in their bedrooms and being lifted out of their bed by, you know, typically three uh, alien beings of some sort, and then uh, you're floating with these beings, and as you approach your bedroom wall or your wherever you are at the particular time, you're lit- you literally move through the wall. You're, you're, you're vibrating at a certain level and it just allows you to pass through that wall. And then they float out someplace and get into this small-looking ship and then you're sat down, you're perhaps stripped naked, and then you realize that the ship is easily ten times the size of what you think you moved into. Now, that, that sort of um, experience is is just mind-blowing. It's not something that you can explain. Um, so do you think that the, 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 the jinn have the capacity to alter your perceptions about what's going on with your, A, your physical body and where you are presently in existence in, on one of these ships or, or, or craft or whatever you want to call it? I, I do, and uh, I've talked to a lot of um, abductees myself, and uh, the, the stories all have similar underpinnings to them about how the experiences take place, their state of consciousness when they take place. Um, for many of them, it, it occurs during stages of sleep, and they think they're dreaming, but they're not dreaming, um, sort right. of those, those kinds of conditions. And we are in some sort of altered reality. Um, they have um, side phenomena like um, uh, that's, that's comparable to what people experience when they have out-of-body projections. The atmosphere changes. Uh, there's a marked shift in the feel of the air, for example. There's, there are often electrical qualities to the air, like um, thunderstorm kinds of energy. Uh, they have tingling sensations, buzzing. Um, I believe that these phenomena are uh, characteristic of interdimensional openings, that these sorts of things occur when these rips open up, these doorways uh, open, and these entities, uh, whether they're jinn or jinn and other beings, they seem to have the ability to manipulate um, these barriers to make openings so that they can come through. And uh, so people are in a kind of a liminal um, bridge or zone uh, when these experiences take place. And um, I think that that's uh, a characteristic that you can find in uh, all kinds of entity abduction experiences described throughout history. Mm-hmm. In your, um, on your website, you've got a, a whole lot of really good, very basic questions about uh, the frequently asked questions, and you know, such things as, you know, do jinn eat, and uh, 
do they sing or whistle? Uh, the, these kinds of things, I guess those would be the questions that people would ask uh, on, a, on a, I don't know if you can call it superficial or not, but on a more basic um, uh, physical level. It, it's quite clear that the jinn actually experience uh, a, a physical kind of, 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 of presence, and then they can also um, be portrayed or at least take the form of something um, non-corporeal. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment? They seem to be able to do that and uh, to be physical and then at will be not physical. And the, the, uh, what we find in the ET uh, abduction phenomenon corresponds to that, too, that mm. uh, they pass through walls, but yet uh, they can grab hold of you. Uh, they seem to be solid and physical, and yet um, they aren't bound by the same um, rules that we are in our dimension. Uh, one of the dominant forms taken by jinn that we find in the uh, abduction phenomenon as well as uh, bedroom invaders and persistent negative hauntings and spirit attachments are shadow people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a, a humanoid form that um, uh, frequently comes into people's bedrooms at night. They can be seen during the day as well and uh, comes through the walls, uh, through windows, up through the floor, the ceiling. In other words, it it materializes into the environment, and it has tangible mass. um, It's solid. You don't see through it. Uh, It blocks out light. It's blacker than black. And if they act out aggressively toward people, uh, you feel this entity grab hold of you, but yet it can disappear in an instant. And I have um, uh, seen these entities myself, that uh, they can turn into mist or smoke uh, or just vanish into thin air, and yet uh, just uh, seconds before that, they had tangible mass. And whether that is um, uh, some manipulation of of, um, physical laws they are able to do, or it's an effect that is created that they are some they can somehow manipulate us to to see that or hallucinate that mm-hmm. we don't know. Yeah, um, I, I speak in, uh, in speaking with a lot of the um, experiencers that I have, and I have a very close friend, and even myself, I'll I'll, I'll share that with you, of being in in um, in bed and waking up and having this this incredibly tangible feeling of absolute terror and dread. There's nobody there. There's nothing that you can see. Uh, your heart is pounding. You're, um, in some cases, sometimes you're, you're actually frozen. You can't move. Um, but you know that there's something there. And I've, it, it, so many people have told me that. It's just like, Victor, you can just sort of reach out and touch it, but there's nothing there. But you have this, this, this sense of absolute terror. Um, what, what might be the explanation for that? Uh, you mean the terror? Well, yeah, just that whole, the paralysis. Well, let's talk about the terror first. Uh, the paralysis is, is something different. Just the the whole feeling of just there, there's something here. There's an entity here. Or there's somebody in the house or uh, what, whatever, and you're just afraid. And it's not a normal state of being. You know, it's not like you're paranoid about these things all the time. You just wake up and have this feeling of absolute terror. In the accounts that, and I've collected hundreds of these accounts. Uh, in fact, well, I have. Uh, really over a thousand uh, now. I've been collecting these accounts for so long. Um, 
first of all, you're being invaded in your most vulnerable place at the most vulnerable time. Mm -hmm. We we are very vulnerable in the dark when we're sleeping. Mm -hmm. And to be jolted out of that and confronted by something that you instinctively know immediately is not human uh, is... Uh, it evokes a visceral, immediate, instinctive, and very primitive uh, adrenaline reaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that these entities uh, vampirize us in that way. This is deliberate. Um, Many cases, these people say that these beings radiate evil and hostility and malevolence. It's an energy that literally pours off them yeah. and they want people to be frightened uh, of course it's a mechanism for control yeah uh rosemary we're going to leave it there uh as okay. usual <laughs> we always don't have enough time to to uh, to drill down uh, more deeply into this kind of stuff but it is fascinating i want to thank you for being with us is there anything else you'd like to mention about your book or your website well, ginuniverse.com is my site about the gin and i've done a couple of books the vengeful gin and the gin connection uh, going into this in depth, and visionaryliving.com is my main website mm-hmm. where uh, I deal with a lot of the uh, other uh, topics that I've researched over the years. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime in the future, as long as those um, little creatures don't interfere with uh, with our communication. They haven't bothered us tonight, at least I haven't felt it anyways. Yes, well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Good. Thanks for being with us, and take care. Thank you. Good bye, night. Bye now. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, fascinating conversation. Um, I guess uh, the next element of, um, I guess, concern is something a little more tangible. And uh, we're going to be joined in a moment by Dr. James Woodward. And he's a professor emeritus of history and an adjunct professor of physics at California University in Fullerton. He's best known for uh, controversial physics and his proposals regarding exotic propulsion. And we're going to be joining Dr. Woodward right after this break. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. As the man says, it, this is The Conspiracy Show, and uh, this is not Richard Serrett. This is Victor Vigiani sitting in for Richard this day in, in the big chair and having a lot of fun. It's been a great evening, and uh, uh, we're going to move on into something a little bit more in the realm of physicality, but nonetheless um, just as bizarre. Uh, we're joined on the, on the line by um, Dr. James Woodward. He's a professor of physics uh, and history at the California State University, and he has some very, very uh, specific ideas about uh, propulsion, exotic propulsion. And the name of his book is Making Starships and Stargates. And that is something of science fiction, but it seems that science fiction is now becoming science reality, slowly and ever-presently making its move and intruding on our reality to a point where you just might not recognize, um, you know, tomorrow from the next day or even then four days ago because of the rate of change that's going on. And in, in speaking with and listening to some of the presentations that uh, Dr. Woodward uh, has done, he is uh, he's pushing that envelope. Um, good evening, Doctor, and thanks for joining us on The Conspiracy Show. My pleasure. 
Yeah. Um, b- before we get into this whole idea of, you know, creating wormholes and, and uh, you know, star drives and, and, and all of that, uh, could you just give our listeners some sort of idea, and we probably all know this, but from, a, uh, from the perspective of an expert, what are the traditional uh, methods of propulsion that, that, we, that we are used to seeing used uh, here? Chemical rockets. Mm-hmm. Taking... <clears throat> explosive materials, mixing them together in a combustion chamber and blowing a bunch of stuff out of tailpipe. I see. And also just basically fossil fuels and all that other kind of stuff that's uh, uh, that's used on a day-to-day basis. So you, you put something in the front end and it blows out the other end and, it, and somehow this thing moves fast. Mm, well, sort of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen are right, right. commonly used yep. or similar hydrazine, various other chemicals. Right. Uh, now, now, the idea that um, that, you're, that that we're looking at, and I, I guess I got this from uh, one of the uh, the programs where I first um, encountered your some of your work. Um, uh, Ancient Aliens was on on the television, and they have a graphic on there where you have there's an apple on a table. It's it's a cartoonish kind of thing, and um, there's a finger that comes in and pushes the apple uh, and moves the apple. And the, the apple, uh, I guess, expresses a resistance to the finger, pushes back. Mm-hmm. And under traditional, um, I guess, thought, that apple is said to be, you know, either friction that, that does this or whatever. Uh, but that's not quite the case from what this particular program was, was, was talking about, that there are other forces acting upon that apple that make it resist the push of your finger. Now, what, what are those forces called? What you're referring to is the force of inertia. Uh, and in the context of something called Mach's Principle, which was an idea that Einstein in- introduced, actually first named it Mach's Principle in 1918, uh, Einstein was convinced that there ought to be more of an explanation for why things push back when you push on them, even if they're unconstrained in an empty space or what have you. If you push on something, it pushes back on you, according to Newton's third law, with an equal and opposite reaction force. And that reaction force that it exerts on you when you try to accelerate it is the inertial resistance to motion. And Einstein was convinced that inertia should be somehow related to gravity and should depend upon the distribution and motion of all of the matter in the cosmos. Uh, this became a highly contentious topic. He got involved in arguments with a fellow named Willem de Sitter about this, and so on. Eventually, he abandoned attempts to do this, but it was revived in the 1950s by a fellow named Dennis Shyama and has been a topic of contention in gravitational physics off and on ever since. So what you're saying is that um, somehow, in in some way, shape, or form, uh, external forces far beyond uh, this planet and within the cosmos Mm -hmm. are, in fact, um, exerting some sort of uh, force uh, on on us right now or on our our physical... Yeah, I could. I just have a really. <laughs> I just don't understand that. What, how, what do you? What, first of all, you call that force something? Is it something specific? Gravity. You call it gravity. I see. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's a gravitational action of the distant matter in the universe. Is it okay? Uh, on the other side of the break, uh, I, I want to ask you 
about um, your work in making that force somehow um, disappear. Um, I think that's a fantastic <laughs> idea that you've got going there. Um, anyway, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. My name is Victor Vigiani and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. And we are here to help you unpull that wool or the world from over your eyes because there are a whole lot of hidden truths that are out there that uh, most of us are just unaware of. We go about our daily work and just um, hammer those nails in and put that paper here and click that mouse there and we think the world is uh, what we see it is. But I've come to learn that that's not the way it is. And with us this evening to prove that point is uh, Dr. James Woodward. He's a professor emeritus of history and an adjunct professor in physics at California State University, Fullerton. And just before the break, we were talking about that, uh, that, that force, uh, the, the inertial force that, that's out there. And uh, in, in, in your work, what you're attempting to do is, um, in a very, on a minuscule level, but prove the theory that that, that force uh, can somehow be either eliminated or minimized. Can you tell us you know, what direction you're going in with that kind of work? Manipulated is probably the right word. Okay. Uh, yeah, a number of years ago, actually more than I like to remember. <laughs> but a number of years ago, I blundered on to uh, some theoretical work of another person, and it suggested the possibility of transiently altering the rest masses of objects uh, by taking advantage of <clears throat> particular aspects of interactions between inertia and local objects. It turns out that if you accelerate a local object and at the same time cause its internal energy to change, that the acceleration combined with the internal energy change causes the rest mass of the object to transiently change is significantly in a significantly larger way than you would normally expect. And what I've been doing since that time is working on getting the theory straightened out and doing some experiments to show that this is indeed the case by building little gizmos that produce minuscule amounts of thrust. So in, in essence, what you're doing is you're, you're operating this at a very small level, but you're obviously moving towards, either conceptually or theoretically, um, towards a, uh, the idea that this can be done in a grander scale? Oh, yes. It can be scaled. There's little doubt about that at this point. Uh, scaling it will no doubt prove more difficult and tortuous than one might like. Uh, what I've discovered in the process of doing this is nothing is ever as simple as it appears at the first that it ought to be. Yeah. Uh, but yes, the effects involved should be scalable and it should be possible to produce thrust devices that don't need to lug along a lot of stuff to blow out of a tailpipe and produce drives that are suitable for operation in space. And if everything scales very nicely, uh, heavy lift is a possibility as well. When you, say, when you use the word scale, could you uh, kind of... Make bigger. 
make bigger. Oh, I see. Okay, I see. So yeah. you, I see. So you're not you're not working at the minimal level. Scale you work up. At, I see. Yeah. Scale it up. Okay. Um, th- this idea of creating um, uh, this 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 I guess this form of exotic propulsion. Um, is there any, or are there any other um, that you're aware of, any other people working in, in this capacity right now that, um, you know, sometimes you independently come up with the same idea? Do you know of anybody else who's working in the same direction? There's a, by global standards, a very small community of people who are interested in this problem and foolish enough to invest effort and resources in pursuing it. Uh, The only other experimental program that I'm aware of is being run by a fellow named Sonny White at NASA Johnson. NASA Johnson, okay. The the word NASA jumps out at me a lot. if if you could sort of categorize uh, this this kind of propulsion that you're that you're looking at, and and some of the work that I've uh, and I'm not a physicist by any stretch of the imagination that could understand it, but my understanding, uh, if I could just sort of flip into the area of, of of the UFO phenomenon for a minute, and some of the explanations that I've heard um, with re- with respect to how these things might move in our own atmosphere, um, and I'm told uh, by physicists that. When this, these, these so-called UFOs move within our own atmosphere, they have a way of moving at, first of all, extreme uh, rates of, uh, rates of uh, acceleration, uh, up to 12, 15,000 miles an hour uh, within our own atmosphere, and they don't burn up, or they don't even cause um, with what we'd normally call a sonic boom. And I've been told by John McDonald, um, uh, rather in his books, that somehow these craft can move the air out of the way so that they A, don't burn up, and B, don't create a sonic boom. Um, what kind of propulsion would they be using, ostensibly, would, would you guess? They're using something substantially more exotic than the sort of thing that I am presently fooling around with. The sort of behavior that you're talking about and this commonly ascribed to these things, mm-hmm. whether they're real or not, it, involves being able to manipulate inertia to the point where you can make something inertia-less. If you can make something inertia-less, you can cause it to accelerate to pretty much any speed you want with minuscule amounts of energy and force and so on. And presumably, if you've got something that's capable of, through some sort of a field effect, rendering the object inertia-less, it would also render the immediate environment inertialist as well. So if it were traveling through the atmosphere, the air, <clears throat> as it came into proximity of the vehicle, would be rendered inertialist and it wouldn't create friction and cause the thing to burn up. I see, I see. Um, the, the broader aspects of, of what you're um, working on in, in terms of the, the politics behind it, uh, are, do you experience any kind of resistance from outside um, either governmental or political forces that, that are um, sort of saying, you know, Mr. Mr. Woodward, you better just sort of cool your jets, so, so to speak? <laughs> in other words, is there a vast government conspiracy to try and stop work of this sort? <laughs> No, you said no. You, you, okay, no. I, I had to ask that question because no, that's okay. Uh, I understand. Yeah, it's the title of the show. Yeah. Yes. No. Well, 
Yeah, I, well, that's not necessarily the reason that I asked, but but because of of what I've I've uh, read about the the so-called UFOs, is that um, if if for whatever reason this new propulsion system or any new anti-gravitic, electromagnetic, or even what you're talking about, whatever the new propulsion systems are, it will render fossil fuels um, basically useless in in terms of propulsion. And that has uh, many government officials and oil barons very, very worried. Uh, do you do you uh, look at some of the work that you're doing as leaning in that direction and in, in, um, in possibly um, being taken up as serious and a threat to the oil industry? No, I don't think the oil industry has anything to do with this, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. The chemical rocket community, I'm sure, looks askance at this sort of activity. This would, you know... At the point where this becomes demonstrated and commercially viable and all the rest of that, there will be political and commercial forces put in play that that are not presently in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's going to be the chemical rocket industry. That's not going to be the, the, fossil the oil barons yeah, yeah. or anybody yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, when you look at it in, um, in in the starkest of terms, you know, putting putting a man on top of a firecracker. And, and, and blasting it up into space and doing what they do uh, through NASA is it, pretty archaic. And it, there seems to be some sort of, um, I guess, uh, idealization that this form of fuel or form of propulsion will soon end. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that what you're working on just might be something that uh, that NASA just might be interested in. You could get a tap on the shoulder and say, listen, we, we like what you're doing, um, and here's a whole bushel full of money. Do, do you see that in the in the offing? <laughs> Uh, to be perfectly frank, no. No. <laughs> Why uh, did I know the answer I, to that question? <laughs> you know, let, me, let, let me explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody in the space business understands that chemical rockets are not ultimately the solution to access, actually, even really, ideally, to low Earth orbit, much less the solar system. And when you're talking about interstellar interstellar travel, uh, realistically speaking, you're talking about seriously exotic types of propulsion, mm-hmm. sort of thing you find in the last few chapters of the book that I published a year or a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the situation that you find is that the physics involved in this is sufficiently novel and sufficiently how should I put it, out of the mainstream. That doesn't mean that it's not good physics. It just means that it's not part of the mainstream view. It's sufficiently out of the mainstream that big government bureaucracies are not going to sink a lot of money into this. They are sinking some money into this. The NASA, as I say, is funding a small effort by Sonny White at NASA Johnson Mm -hmm. and Part of the project that he's doing is looking for a way to produce serious space-time distortions, though the theoretical basis on which he's pursuing things is a little different than the one that I think is the right way to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the government is putting some money into this, and it's public. There's nothing secret about it and all that. He's been on TV and and the media and all that. So, you know, uh, it appears as though there is a change taking place in what's reasonable and what's acceptable. I think that there's a very slight shift 
away from just simply automatic rejection of this sort of work to very, very careful yeah. uh, consideration of possibly putting at least some modest resources into it. Uh, as far as putting resources into the work that I'm doing, the way if your listeners are interested, mm. they can do that is to get on the website of the Space Studies Institute, SSI.org, and what they will discover is that the Space Studies Institute has recently put together an exotic propulsion initiative on their website, and if you go to the website, they have a link to where you can buy the book, and the book's royalties go almost exclusively to support this project, to support the Space Studies Institute's initiative, which is mm -hmm. broader than just the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, Sounds fascinating. They can, join, they can join the Space Studies Institute, mm -hmm. preferably as a senior associate, for $100 a year, and some of their money will go into supporting research. Mm -hmm. uh, or they can donate directly to the Exotic Propulsion Initiative. Uh, so it's possible for people to help out with this, but... NASA coming along with a large amount of money or some other government agency or something like that, it's probably premature for that mm -hmm. at this point. Be when yeah. Before I let you go, I just want to get uh, your uh, one last comment on you uh, quickly, if I could, regarding the part of the name of your book. You know, you, the name of the book is, is very, you know, Making Starships and Stargates right. um, and Wormholes and all of that. It, it, it's that, that. That, to me, is an absolutely fascinating line of pursuit that we might want to have you back on. It, it, do these things worm, called wormholes, can they be created or do they just exist in, in nature? <laughs> Depends on who you talk to. There's some... There's some Many physicists who are aware of what's going on in this area would tell you that they that wormholes presumably are naturally existing objects at the scale of quantum fluctuations of space-time, and that the way in which to create a so-called traversable wormhole is to find a way to, with utterly minuscule tweezers, get your hands on one of these naturally occurring wormholes and then find some way of ablating it up to macroscopic dimensions. I don't think that's a reasonable way to go. Okay. Uh, well, I will let, we uh, just about run out of time. I just want to give you a chance to uh, uh, you know, plug your book, uh, your book, where can you get it, and et cetera, et cetera. It's available on Amazon or probably through most booksellers. It's published by Springer Verlag, which is a highly reputable major scientific publisher. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an obscure thing that's self-published, and you have to scrounge real hard right. to find it. Right. And you'll find it on the SSI website, too. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Woodward. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. A pleasure here, too. Good night. Good night. Fascinating, no doubt about it. Anyways, that's about it for The Conspiracy Show this week. Uh, go to my website, Zeland Communication, and also go to Richard, richardserrett.com, uh, for more information about what you've heard tonight. Richard will be back next week to unveil more of the marvelously incredible world of the hidden truth and otherwise concealed reality here on The Conspiracy Show. Just keep in mind the words of our friend George Orwell. In this world of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. My name is Victor Vigiani, and let's talk again soon.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.